This message is from Icon from Community Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Today's scripture is from text John 2, 13 through 24. The Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove, the money, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, What sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, This temple took 46 years to build, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them, since he knew he knew them all. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We do truly give you thanks for your word. God, sometimes we say things and they become routine, uh, but Father, I pray that we truly would be thankful uh, that you don't leave us uh, trying to figure you out. You don't leave us trying to piece things together. You have revealed yourself in the person of your son and through the illumination of your word by your Holy Spirit. So God, I pray that as we dig into your word, will you move us out of the way? Will you show us more of yourself? God, show us the ways that, uh, that we don't see you. Show us the ways that we don't want you enough. Show us the ways that we don't love you enough. And then, God, do the work that you promised to do. Transform us and uh, enable us. Give us the ability to love well, to live well, to lead well for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been in this series uh, in John, and one of the reasons why I was so excited to start John, for us to walk in, is because John is very different from the first three Gospels, these Gospels known as the Synoptic Gospels. They draw from a lot of the same material, so there's a lot of similarities in their stories. John has a very different focus. Now, they all have very specific focuses, but John really wants to be able to show the very glory of who God is and to be able to show Jesus as the very presence, the very manifestation of the glory of God. And so you remember, he's, uh, he's already said, I'm writing these things so that you will believe. All of the things that John is sharing with us about Jesus is to make us actually more equipped, more informed believers so that we will know him not just as Jesus, a good guy, Jesus, a really a, a incredible miracle worker, but not only even Jesus as Savior, but Jesus as the very Son of God. And so that's why the story that 
that we're walking into now, it's interesting because when you, we just heard it read and we heard this story that we kind of know, Jesus walking into the temple, and we're going to learn a little bit about what that actually means. But this is the only gospel out of all four that places this story here. If you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this story of Jesus in the temple is, that, is at the very end of his life. And John places it here at the very beginning of his ministry. And so you might think, oh, is that some type of contradiction? Not necessarily. If you really think through the way Middle Eastern writing would have worked, this wasn't necessarily meant always to be a chronology. The authors would say, which story should I place in order to highlight the theme I'm trying to point you to? And so John is wanting to point us to something about Jesus, and it's very telling that John would place this story, this story of him basically kicking over money changers, kicking in the dough, waving a fofo. Some of y'all can finish that. I'm not going to finish it here. Look it up later. He's walking in, and he's really kind of turning up, getting really kind of upset, and we're seeing this anger that's on display, and he places it right after he was at a wedding. So there's this picture that you've got where you almost have to go, which Jesus do I want? Do I want the Jesus that shows up at the wedding, or do I want the Jesus that shows up at the riot? Because for a lot of us, we only want one or the other. For a lot of us, we love the Jesus that is a unifier. It was, it was incredibly unifying. Very rarely, well, I guess it depends on your wedding, but most weddings aren't that divisive. I guess it depends on if people are like four or what's happening. But by and large, the idea of a wedding and a reception is we're all united in this idea that we're celebrating the nuptials of this couple that hopefully we all love. And so Jesus shows up. They had, we just talked about it, they had this crisis. There was no uh, wine. The wine had run out. We talked about legally what that would have meant, that, that the folks who put on that party could have been sued. And so Jesus goes out of his way to care about things that we might think are menial. And that's him, his way of showing, I not only care about where you are spiritually, I care about your day-to-day. -day. I care about your life. I care about the things that bring you joy. I care about the things that might bring you sorrow. And Jesus shows up and he unites but this story shows that also Jesus is divisive. This is important because for a lot of us, especially in the culture that we're in now, we use language that I don't think we understand or we'll appropriate language and we actually create a Jesus that isn't the Jesus of the Bible. What do I mean? Well, if somebody is getting ready to make a point or point out something that might cause controversy, but it still might be true, we'll say, you know, I just... That's just really divisive. I don't really want to talk about things that are divisive. I'd rather just talk about the things that unite us. Well, you, you realize that we can be united in the wrong thing. You can be united in sin. Where in the Bible does it say that the ultimate goal is always unity? Not necessarily. The ultimate goal is conformity to God's image. Sometimes that means we need to be united in the things that represent God's heart. But if there is sin in the camp, or if there is something, if there's some aspect of who God is that I'm wrong on, we need to be divided on this thing. And so Jesus is showing you that being a Christian or being a follower of God, being a follower of Jesus, does not necessarily mean that you don't address things or bring up things or, or confront things that are actually counter to who God is. So the goal here is not to just go, how do I just always be a uniter? It has to almost be, what does it mean to be able to uphold God's image in any and all cases? Sometimes that means that we'll be united on it. Sometimes it means that we might be divided on it. So we'll talk more about that and how that looks and how Jesus gets into that uh, here. But, but keep in mind, you know, it's hard because a lot of times when we are, let's just think about it in relationship terms, friends, family, whatever. 
Let's say that you're super close to a person and you love them dearly. And they, and which means that your relationship to them, there's in some way, there's a, there, there are ways in which they fill your relational bucket. This is my family member. Uh, there's a relationship I have with them. What I need from them, I get. I am satisfied in my relationship, right? So I have nothing but, by and large, I have nothing but good things to say about this person. But what if uh, somebody else has interacted with them and they don't have that same relationship? And they don't have those same stories. As a matter of fact, they may have indeed been hurt by that person. How do you respond? You either have to go, can't be true because I know them and I have a relationship with them. They couldn't possibly have done that or it couldn't have meant what you think it means because I know them, right? What are you really saying? They filled my bucket and so that's the only thing I can hold on to. They, the relationship I have with them, that's how I choose to see them, even if there are other things that might uh, 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 infringe upon the way that I view that thing or that person. Because I, I just have this view of them, and that's the only view that I choose to have. So even if you've been hurt or even if you've been betrayed or, or anything, this is kind of a negative situation, I, I refuse to hold on to that. I can't believe it because they've already filled my bucket so well for me. I can't believe it. I'm biased, right? Well, in, in a similar way, not in the same way, we do that with Jesus. I love either this form of Jesus over here. That's the Jesus that I appropriate. That's the Jesus I hold on to. But I don't like this thing over here of what, what it might mean. It might uh, end up stepping on something I already hold on to. It might uh, 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 completely run counter to the way I've been viewing a certain aspect of the world. And so that Jesus I don't like. In other words, I like marriage Jesus. I don't like riot Jesus. I like party Jesus. I don't like protest Jesus. And the point we're going to get, we're going to see here is you have to love Jesus, all of them, the party and the protest, the wedding and the riot. That's why I think John puts this story here. We're coming right out of this. So when you think about where we are, Jesus has just uh, been at this nearby village in Cana and this incredible wedding that, that clearly uh, he was, had some connection to, either by, as a friend of the bride or groom, or the groom likely, or as a family member. And so we find him now moving past that into this story. And, and so what John tells us is, here they are doing the time of Passover. We, we need a little bit of context here. We've talked about this story before, but there's some additional things we might be able to pick up. So you know that according to the law, if you, were, if you were Jewish, you were required or you were expected to come to Jerusalem for three festivals every year, if you could. You wanted to make it to Jerusalem for three festivals. You know, when they would have Passover, Passover, this massive uh, time of celebration, you would have this Feast of Weeks or the Festival of Weeks, and you would have roughly about 50 days, seven weeks of parties and enjoying and celebrating. And what are they celebrating? They're celebrating this incredible story of the Passover. This incredible story where uh, God's people know that certain death is coming to everyone in that land in Egypt. And God says, go out and go take your choices lamb. And you're going to slaughter that lamb. And you're going to take the blood of that lamb. And you're going to put it over your door. And when the angel of death comes, as long as the blood of the lamb is over the door, you will be spared, you will be saved, and death will pass over you. This incredible picture of salvation that they had been celebrating now for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. They wanted to remember this, and, and the goal was, we want to remember the time that the blood of the lamb saved us until the ultimate lamb comes, and we'll be saved by that blood. 
That was always the goal. So they've been celebrating this the whole time. This party's going, people have been doing this over and over again. This would not have been Jesus' first time celebrating Passover. This is the beginning of his ministry, so he's roughly about 30 years old at this point. And, and, and all of these folks are coming in town. As a matter of fact, uh, we see this in Deuteronomy. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So three festivals. We know that biblically. And you see that in John's gospel, he mentions at least three Passovers. He also mentions Jesus' attendance at the Feast of Tabernacles. We'll see that uh, in, in about five chapters or so. We see the Feast of Dedication. We see another feast that isn't specified. So we know contextually it makes sense. All these festivals are going on. Jesus is present. And then we have this incident of Jesus cleansing the temple taking place at Passover. Verse, verse 13 tells us when it was time for uh, uh, Jewish Passover, this is, this, is what we, this is what we're seeing. Jewish Passover was near, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, here's this, this as we know, this wasn't Jesus' first Passover. He had uh, been here ever since childhood. We, talk, we referred to that story before as a kid. He was there at the temple during Passover when they were looking for him, and he was uh, uh, reading and teaching from Isaiah 53. He's very familiar with this, with this. He's a good Jewish boy. But this is the first time he's come to Passover during his public ministry. So this is Jesus' beginning, his, uh, this is his beginning ministry. It's the first time he's in Passover in front of all of these folks. And, and so uh, it's the time for him to begin to call people to repentance at the very center of Judaism. He may not have done that before when he was 12, but his ministry is beginning. So he leaves doing this, the first miracle of this wedding, this marriage, creating wine to, it's time to cleanse the temple. So he comes to the temple, and if you remember, we talked about this before, if you were Jewish, people came to the temple from all over the known world. You had uh, folks, uh, uh, Jewish folks, all over the known world in countries all over, and so if they could make the pilgrimage, they made the pilgrimage to come. And so you've got this group of folks coming from, from everywhere. They're coming from all over. They, they're trying to get to the temple. They're trying to... Now, what would they be coming to do? They would be coming to celebrate, and they would be coming to bring their sacrifice for their sin for the year because that was a constant reminder, right? There were certain things that were there in the law to say, I'm so aware of my sin. I'm so aware of my brokenness. I need to bring this. And it was really a way to be able to remain humble, to realize I'm totally reliant on God's forgiving and the coming Messiah that will come and cleanse me once and for all. So they would come, and, and so the idea was if you, were, if you lived near the temple, you would bring your cattle, you would bring sheep, and if you were, uh, or you would bring a, a dove, and you would come and you would have that sacrifice. So these folks are there to bring their sacrifice, and they would come right to the temple to have that done. That's why it's not surprising. You look at verse 14. In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. Now, why would those people be there? Well, we already said, you have to make sure that you've got your sacrifices. Well, if you come from, if you come from 50, 100, 150 miles away, and maybe you came by camel, and you, and you had a, a caravan of folks with you, you likely didn't bring your cow 150 miles with you. They probably wouldn't have made the journey. You probably didn't bring your sheep and cattle and all of that with you. And so it just would have been cumbersome. It doesn't mean people didn't do it. It was just very unlikely. So what would you do? 
Well, you had very enterprising entrepreneurs, nothing wrong with any of that, very enterprising entrepreneurs that were like, you know what, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to make sure that folks can, A, purchase cattle or sheep or whatever sacrifice they need so that they can then take that to the temple and have it sacrificed for them. So there's the first thing. First thing was, and again, there's nothing wrong, right? We love to, you know, it's, I never know what it truly means when say, hey, what do you do for a living? I'm an entrepreneur. I don't really know what that means all the time because you could be peddling something that's actually harmful to somebody. I don't know what that means. It, it's an amoral title. It doesn't really mean anything. But these folks were like, hey, there's a way, there's a need. We can help supply that need. We can make money in supplying that need. Great. Supply and demand. We can do this. So these folks are there. But, but it's, a, it's a problem because here's what would happen. If you're coming from all over the known world, guess what? All these different countries, they have a lot of different currencies. They don't all just have the same currency. So you've got a problem. Because if you're going to come from one country, you're going to go into Roman-occupied, Roman-controlled Jerusalem, you've got to figure out, okay, what kind of coinage do I get to use in order to, to exchange so that I can actually purchase what needs to be purchased? So you had people called money changers. These are folks that were there in the temple, and their job was, okay, which kind of coins were you bringing in? You're coming from this country, this coin? All right, here's the exchange rate for this coin. But they would also add interest on those exchange rates, which was actually illegal in the Jewish law. You were never supposed to charge interest, but they were because they wanted to be really smart entrepreneurs. See, it's really dangerous when you just go, I really like this because it's just a good business model or it's a really good idea. It's, it's, it's great to maximize the bottom dollar. That's great, but you got to remember that no matter what economic system, we're not going to baptize any economic system in the blood of Jesus, by the way. We don't do that because all of those things could be good. We're not saying anything is absolutely bad or good. What we're saying is because of the sin nature of mankind, I will exploit any system for my own gain. So without, if you don't have some type of check or balance there, it will be abused. I don't care what it is. So, so that's the case here. You've got these folks who are going, you know what? These folks are coming. They're desperate. They're going to pay whatever rate we give them because they don't have a choice. They don't want to be unholy. They don't want to look like they're not worshipful. There is a danger when you monetize worship. There's a danger when you monetize the way you can, or you monetize the way you connect to God. There's a danger when any church does that. And so, and so now you've got these folks who have these money-changing tables, and basically they're, they have people very desperate. They don't have any other choice. They're like, well, if I want to be able to buy this, I've got to have the right type of coinage. Most people agree that the type of coinage is the coins that came from the, the country of Tyre. It's called Tyrian coins. No, it's not Lannister family coins for those of you that watch that show. But, but these, these Tyrian coinage, this was likely the most common. And the reason why Jewish folks would have used it is because it was one of the few coins within the Roman Empire that did not have Caesar's face on it. And that would have been considered idolatry. So you've got these, uh, you basically wanted to exchange whatever you had for Tyrian coins, so you could go buy what you'd have to buy. So you've got this problem here. Jesus walks in, and he sees the fact that not only have people merchandised worship, but they also are exploiting people in, at, at the same time, violating the law at the same time. So, so this never really was about, right, worshiping God, putting God first, really coming with a contrite, humble, broken heart. It was really, how can I use worship in order to enlarge myself? 
So Jesus comes on the scene and he sees this. And he sees uh, what's happening. He's got, just try to put yourself in the scene. You've got people traveling to and fro all, all around the temple. You've got the sounds of animals mooing and bleeding and cattle and sheep. It probably smells amazing. All of that's happening around the temple where people are wanting to worship and pray. And you've got these folks, these money-changing tables that are, that are nearby. And so you've got this, this really messed up scene. Jesus sees it, and he gets incensed. But there's another question here. Think about the two things he says when he, when he, when he sees this happen. So he goes in. He, uh, the scripture says, after making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and their oxen, and he also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. And he told those who were selling doves, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Now, this is very telling. Number one, it's, I don't even know how to understand. It would have been great just to be able to see what this looked like, because we love, like, calm and docile beach boy Jesus, I call him all the time. <laughs> just sitting on a surfboard and just like namaste, kind of this kind of Jesus that we have in our head. And that's the Jesus we prefer until there's some type of brokenness that somebody begins to speak out about, and then we get mad. The moment somebody wants to speak out about an injustice that God absolutely hates, then we get mad. And then we're like, no, that's, why, why are you, can't you see what we would have done to Jesus if we saw him doing this now? Imagine Jesus going into uh, any kind of setting where business is happening, and he walks in, and he's just knocking over computers, <laughs> kicking over tables, brandishing a weapon. I'm not saying anybody should do this. I'm just saying. He comes in, and he starts knocking everything around, and, he's, and we would say, that's really not the best way to go about that, Jesus. Like it's, you know what we would do? We would tone police him. We would say, you know, the way you said that, it's just really offensive, or be like, you know, I, can you imagine people seeing him going, the way that you just, what you said might have been true or what you did might have been true, but it really made me feel bad. And I just, I prefer a Jesus that can tell me truth, but doesn't make me feel bad. I, I don't really like being made to feel like the bad guy. I, I've not been as bad as the other folks. Jesus, you're knocking people over table. I, I, yes, I'm a money changer, but I, I've only charged 4% interest. They charge 8 because that's what we do, right? We, when we don't want to own all of our stuff, we measure ourselves against somebody that's been way worse. That way we don't have to feel so bad. That's what a lack of humility looks like. And so these folks are there. Jesus is on the scene. Most of us in our culture would have been like, that's just really mean. That's just really not nice. That's not Christ-like. How weird is that? You realize today we would tell Jesus he's not enough like Jesus. Based on this story alone, we would tell him this. You, you're just not Christ-like enough, Jesus. That just sounds ridiculous. And yet, here he is showing it. Now, one other thing he says. Why does he pick out the money changers and those selling doves? Because there's a lot of people there, right? There's people selling things other than doves. Why does, he, why does he specifically, you see this in the book of Mark and Luke as well, he points out the very same things. Why point out the money changers and the doves here? Well, the money changers, we kind of get, right? 
It's already made it. They, they've been monetizing. They've turned it into a merchandising area. So that in and of itself was never meant to be the case, right? So that's one thing. So you could stop there and just go, okay, we need to make sure that we don't turn church into a marketplace. We want to make sure. That, and so there are some people that have taken that, and, and that's where they end it. But then there's this dove piece. Why bring up, why bring up this issue of, of the doves? Well, the reason why he points this out, you have to understand within the Jewish law what a dove represented. You see, again, if you were Jewish and you were going to bring your sacrifice, you were supposed to bring a sheep, lamb, goat, but those were things that people could only have if they could afford it. But what if you were too poor to be able to afford to bring a goat or a sheep or a lamb? What did you do? Well, there was a provision in the law for that. For those who are poor, for those who can't afford that, you can bring a dove, specifically two doves. That's why when we sing on the, on the, the days of Christmas and we say two turtle doves, that's why. Because guess who brought doves when they were a little baby? Guess whose family brought doves? Jesus' family. When you recall what happened when his family came to celebrate Passover and came to give their first uh, offering and their first sacrifice, you know what it was? It were two turtle doves. He was poor. So here's what we see. What we see is that not only are we noticing that Jesus is mad that worship is being monetized, Jesus is even more mad because he's seeing poor people being exploited. If you really want to get on Jesus' bad side, treat poor people unfairly. Please hear this. If you want to get on Jesus' bad side, overlook, mistreat, and ignore poor people. This is what is making him outraged. He's, he's angry because it's not just that they're doing this stuff and they're monetizing. Ultimately, you've got poor people who are being exploited the same way. You've got people who aren't poor being exploited. But he's even more angry because he realizes, guess what? If you're poor and you get exploited, you don't bounce back at the same rate that the other folks do. So you've got this situation where he's looking, he's getting so angry, and he's like, you know what? i got to knock everything out of here. Give me a cord. Starts. I just wish I could be like in my sanctified imagination. I just imagine Jesus, like I'm about to give him all of this. I'm about to, I'm braiding this. They're going to feel this. Like he's just, hey, and you need something like that if you're going to get cows out of the way. So it's not just, I just want you to feel these welts. Like it's largely, he's got to get them and all the animals out. And he's angry. Y'all, there's got to be something in us that makes us go, you know what? Anytime I see injustice Anywhere, I move to protest. Amen. I heard somebody, I saw a very famous pastor say this that really just, it was just completely unbiblical, but it sounded great and it's popular within evangelical spaces, so we repeat it. Um, he said, you know, when there was bad times in Jesus' time, Christians didn't protest, they just prayed. That's like telling Jesus he don't look like Jesus then. Th think about that for a minute. We, we make this lazy, it's very lazy logic. It makes sense on the, you know, there, there's, there's this kind of, ostensibly it makes sense until you dig a little deeper. Number one, if you were living in Roman-occupied areas, uh, you had no say in how you were governed, right? You didn't have any say. You lived there, the law of the land was what it was, you obeyed it, that was that. So, so to really, there was really no place, you could do it, but there's really no place to really protest. Protests wouldn't have brought about anything. You, you can still do it and make a point and die. And people did. That's what Jesus is doing. 
They didn't have the ability to change how they were governed. They had no vote. They didn't vote for the people who represented them. So, so it, was, it was different than now. So to say, it's very ignorant to say, listen, when there are really bad things happening in our country, in our nation, for no matter what issue we care about, you know, it's, it's really bad. All we have to do is just pray. It's really funny, depending on what side of whatever political aisle you're on. You have no problem, right? You'll say, just pray about it. I don't want to do anything else. Unless it's a hot-button political issue for you. Then you're really glad to protest, whether it's in a Facebook message or what have you. So to say, like, well, you know, all this getting involved in these things that, that could be really divisive, we just need to just pray about it. That's not what Jesus did. That's not what he calls us to do. We've got to be able to, yes, party, and we've got to be able to protest. And actually, this is what every, if anything, Christians should be the best example of what good, healthy protest should look like. What do we protest? Anywhere where the kingdom here doesn't look like the kingdom that's coming, we protest. We speak out about. We never just remain uh, complacent about. Whatever the issues are, we continually speak out. And it's hard because once you do that, now you consider being divisive. And to that you should say, so is Jesus. And so when people are hearing him say this, and he makes this bold claim, and he says, he uses this phrase, he says, my father's house. Now that right there is a very, very bold claim to make. Because he comes in and he does this thing, this grandiose thing, this, this demonstration of anger, that, that, and he speaks with an authority. I mean, can you just imagine just a, a normal, regular citizen, some little village, a tiny little village in Nazareth, and they remember that's, that's that guy that's like a weird story. Didn't his mama claim she got pregnant by a ghost or something? Like, who is this dude? They don't really know. Most of the folks have no idea still who he really is. These folks who are with him, they still don't quite know what's going on yet. They've seen some things, but they don't quite know. So Jesus pops up and does this thing and shows he just made a bunch of wine. That was incredible. Now he's like throwing over stuff, going, kind of throwing a temple tantrum, if you, if you, if you will. And he's going off and getting angry. Like, who is this, who is this dude? And then, then after he does this, he says, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Jesus is doing more than just saying, this is bad, do better. He's actually saying, I have the authority to call this thing out because I come from my father. I and my father are one. We see him say that elsewhere. I'm the son of God. I'm God in the flesh. My house should never look like this. You see, when you go to someone's home, hopefully it's clean, <laughs> you go to somebody's house or if somebody comes to your house, and you, you throw a party, you throw a get-together, and people come to your house, and, and they decide, like, uh, you know what? I'm going to determine which bathroom in your house I use. That wouldn't work, would it? Or, I know you said it's time to go, but I'm having a good time, so I'm going to hang another couple hours. <laughs> now, I get it. That can happen really subtly. Don't get me wrong. Like you, try to, you try to give hints. Oh, I'm getting tired. Whew, yeah, I was tired yesterday. Anyway, listen. <laughs> So you can be subtle with it, but if you just direct like, hey, we got to go to bed, we got to get up in like four hours, so good seeing you. And you're like, okay, we well, all go, I'm just going to watch TV. That'd be like, you are a rude guest. This is my house. You don't get to determine what you do in my house. You get to determine what bathroom you use. You don't get to determine when to turn the TV on. This is my house. I pay for this house. My name's on the, the note. I pay the bills. It's like I'm talking to my kids. I <laughs> 
We said this before. Hey, which one of these bills have your name on it? <laughs> but, but I mean, for somebody to just come in your house and do that, you would go, this is just, ri- how, how ridiculous is this? Who do you think that you are? That's what Jesus is doing here. The fact that you feel like you can, A, monetize my father's house and then exploit people in my father's house, there's a problem here. You are acting as if you pay the deed here and you don't. So when Jesus says, my father's house, he's making a very bold claim. He's not just saying this generically. He's making a claim about his own divinity, which is very consistent because throughout the scriptures, John continually keeps showing us, by the way, Jesus was God. It's one of his overarching themes. Jesus is God. And so, so, so Jesus uh, makes this and he, he uses this phrase. Then he quotes from a passage they all would have known. And he, he says this phrase, uh, and his disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. If you recall, this is something that David said in Psalm 69. David's on the run, running for us, because he's got all these, inter- these issues happening with, with a leadership and his family and the king, and he's on the run, and he's going, and he's angry, and he's frustrated, and he's going, zeal for your house will consume me. This is not just some like cute, precious moments phrase. He's basically saying, my desire to see your kingdom here could, could easily be the end of me. How many of us have that kind of a zeal? I'm not saying a zeal for like, listen, we all are really good at having a zeal for like our own things that we care about, whether politically or otherwise. Like we've got zeal for that. Not always bad, but we have that, right? Question is, do we have a zeal for God's kingdom or do we have a zeal for our kingdom? What are you consumed by? Maybe a better question is, what stirs your greatest affections? Seriously, what stirs your greatest affections. Is it, honestly, the things that, you know, some of these things that just matter to us individually and that gets me going more so than, wow, I'm seeing evidence of the kingdom on display and that is what I'm moving toward. You know, they're, they're, depending on what's happening in your life, things will either steal your affection for God or stir your affection for God. That's it. They will either steal your affection for God or they will stir your affection for God. And there's got to be, if your affection for God is stirred, then when you see things that are not in line with where his heart is, you should get stirred. And when there are things that are in line, it stirs our affections towards worship. See, that's where we go. We are always working through uh, rhythms of worship and rhythms of mourning. In my own brokenness, when I, when I find myself beset by sin, I'm in a rhythm of mourning. I should be, it should stir me to go, wow, this doesn't look like who Jesus is. This doesn't look like who God is. I am stirred and I am broken. And the times where, Lord, this worked out well, or Lord, we were able to, to follow you, and I'm so thankful I was able to follow you in this, still don't pat myself on the back. It stirs me towards worship and, 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 and being, praise, uh, being praised or praising him and seeing the things that are praiseworthy about him. That's what it means. So when, 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 when they, it's interesting too. This is another thing that's really cool. Jesus does things and his disciples get reminded of scripture. This is why it's so important that we regularly read scripture. Nowadays, it's kind of, it's, it's weird. You don't really hear, people don't go into that as much anymore because we've got lots of great, sometimes because you've got incredible technology, we've got sermons online, Sadly, memes are, are, are used more than Scripture is. We can quote memes way faster than we can quote the Bible. Whether the meme is accurate or not, 
We can quote that faster than the Bible. But there's something about when you're walking with Jesus and Jesus reveals things, it should start to remind us of scripture that's already been deposited. That's usually how he works. We're going to see it again in a little bit. Things happen, then the disciples get reminded, oh, that's kind of like that scripture we heard before that we've been memorizing ever since we were kids. And so they, they, they're reminded, oh my goodness, the reason why Jesus is like this is not so that he can just make himself feel like I showed them. They weren't ready for somebody like me. I turned this place out. He's not doing that. He's basically going, the reason why I'm here, the reason why I'm feeling the way that I feel is because I have such a zeal for the house of God. A zeal. My, my greatest affections are stirred by the desire to see the kingdom of God here. And so here, uh, he makes this statement, and the disciples are starting to kind of be put on game. They're, they're, they're starting to kind of realize, oh, wait, there's, I'm connecting some dots here. Maybe not fully and perfectly, but I'm connecting some, some dots here. And so the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? This was their way of saying, who do you think you are? Who gives you the right to say these things? Notice they did not deny the claims that were made. They didn't actually say, I don't know who you are, but you got it all wrong. Ain't no robbers here. Because he called them, he called it a den of robbers. Like he made a very glaring accusation. And that's a bold thing to publicly accuse somebody of being a robber. You would think that they would have been like, we're getting the courts involved. You just made false testimony and there's punishment for that. But they actually didn't, they, they couldn't. They didn't actually stop them from that. This is sometimes where you know that you've, you've done wrong and you get caught. And this is how you know when you know you can't get out of it. Because instead of like denying it, it's like, well, how'd you find out? Who told you? Where'd you hear that? They, they are almost like we talk about it a lot. Like sometimes once you know you've kind of lost the argument, you start arguing about how you argue. Well, why you gotta, why you gotta say that so loud? You're not listening, you're not listening, you're not listening. Anyway, that's what we'll, what we'll do. Well, they do that. They're like, well, Jesus makes this claim. You guys have monetized and merchandised uh, the temple, and you are a den of robbers. You are robbing people. You are stealing from people. You are charging what, things you should not be charging, and you're exploiting the poor. And so they go, they can't say, well, I didn't do that. They can't say, you got it wrong, or they can't say, just hear me out. Instead, they just go, what can you do to prove to us that you deserve to even be saying these things to us? What's, where's your authority? How do you have the right to say these things to us? And Jesus answered, and I think his answer is really funny to me because he gives them an answer that they clearly can't understand. And it, this probably would annoy me. Like, I'm the kind of person where it's like, don't give me cryptic answers. Like, I, I've always hated, like, watching movies where they're like, how do we get to this particular place? The answer lies in you. I've never liked that. Don't understand what that means. That doesn't help me. I don't need that kind of ambiguity in my life. I need clarity. But he does. He looks at them and they're like, how, how can you prove to us that you have the right to say this? And he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Now, they clearly didn't understand that. There was no way they would see what he's talking about. They're like, which is why they, they answer, this temple took 46 years to build. You're going to raise it up in three days? Now, it's interesting. Like, Jesus knew. He knew that they weren't going to understand this at this time. He, he knew that specifically the audience there, 
They wouldn't understand this at this time. Matter of fact, we also know, based on what it says next, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Get this. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. This right here is powerful. Because this means, and I think everybody in here can attest to this, the first time you heard the gospel, you probably didn't respond. Some of us didn't. Some of us, we heard things or heard multiple stories or multiple things, and maybe we uh, uh, responded in some ways, but not fully or not totally understanding it. Even if you're a believer right now, how many of you, every year, you start hearing or reading something that gives you a deeper understanding of the gospel, a deeper understanding of his love, a deeper understanding of your own brokenness? This is what's unique about walking with Jesus. These guys walked with Jesus, saw incredible miracles, and still didn't get it. Still didn't get it. We'll see this later. I'm going to bring it up again in a couple of weeks when, for those of us who are like, you know, if only, if only there were more signs. It's very dangerous when, we, when, when, when our faith is contingent upon signs. Now, signs are incredibly helpful, and signs can be incredibly beneficial to our faith, and it can help strengthen your faith but it should not be the foundation for your faith. Because ultimately, these folks were like, well, give us, give us a sign and prove it. These disciples saw all kinds of signs and still struggled to believe. And at times, just, just rejected him. I think sometimes you, me, we give ourselves too much credit for what we think we would do if we had signs in our life. You know what would happen? What would happen if God just kept doing those same kind of signs? God would only be as good as the last sign he did for you. That would be it. Because the moment you didn't get that sign again, God must not be with me anymore. Or was that really him? Because he showed up for me then, but he's not doing it now. That might not have been him. Or I must have done something wrong. Because now I'm feeling like, you know, it's a transactional thing. I do something good, he gives me a sign. But that's not how he functions. So, so these, now these, you know, you see Jesus say it all the time, the Jews require a sign. They're asking for a sign. And he gives them a sign that they could only understand when their hearts and minds are illuminated by him. They could not, it was like, the scripture says, it was like a, a confusion, it was confounding for them. It was like folly for them. It was foolishness to them. That's why they responded, are you silly? It took 46 years to, to make this. It, it took 46 years, and technically it just took 46 years to rebuild it. It had already been uh, destroyed several times uh, a couple of thousand years before. And so it took 46 years to kind of rebuild. Herod had done a lot to rebuild the temple. It would eventually be destroyed in 70 AD. But, but at this point, it's been rebuilt and been kind of uh, ornately decorated and, and, and remodeled. And so they're looking at this and they're going, he, this, he's talking crazy. There's no way in the world that he can do this. And somehow the disciples in hearing this wouldn't be until Jesus' resurrection would bring them back to, wow, he really was who he said he was. And it says, while he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all, and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he knew, he knew himself, he himself knew what was in a man. 
Now, this right here is the, the last portion that I thought was really curious. Like, what does that mean? He would not entrust himself to these followers. I mean, he does this, these signs. He does these incredible things, and people are looking going, wow, that's, that was amazing. What he just did was, I'll never forget, that was, that was really incredible. The scripture says he did several other miracles. We don't know what they are. It just says that there, were, that, there were, that there were more that were done here. As it said, while he was, many believed in his name and, and they saw the signs he was doing. So you have people believing in his name, believing in the power they saw. They, 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 it's, it's one thing, and I think it's interesting. You're noticing the difference between, between surface-based belief and true heartfelt commitment. See, there were, you, can be, you can be wowed and amazed by somebody in the moment and still not follow. You'll just be like, that was impressive. I believe that person is impressive. I believe that person is capable of doing some really, really great things. I believe that they are somebody that if you have a problem, you should go to. But I'm not necessarily a follower of them. It's that difference of being like a fan of somebody versus actually following them. And so now you've, when Jesus says, and this is, this was hard for me to get at first because I'm like, man, like they, they believed, right? So that seems like that should be good. They, 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 they believe, but, but here's the problem. Faith that rests on miracles alone and doesn't mature to embrace Jesus and follow him is shallow and it's fickle. This goes back again. You can't have a faith that's resting on miracles. These folks, that's where they would have been. They believe because there was a miracle. But did Jesus say, blessed are those that believe and don't have a sign, right? They're believing because they're like, I, I just need, y'all, this is something we got to hold on to because sadly, our Christianity at times gets shaped in a way where it's like, Lord, I only know you're there if you keep bringing me another miracle. So my prayers are, Lord, bring a miracle. Nothing wrong with praying that, okay? We can, we can pray for any of these things. But how are you evaluating God if that miracle doesn't happen? How are you evaluating your faith if that miracle doesn't happen? See, Jesus didn't entrust himself to these folks because he realizes mankind is very fickle when it comes to fun miracle stuff. We'll be like, Lord, you are amazing. You did this incredible, incredible miracle for me today. And then next week we'll say, crucify him. That miracle wasn't good enough. That's who we are. This isn't just them. That's, that's who we are. So when Jesus comes on the scene and he sees not only that folks are uh, they're, they're, they're super excited to, 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 work, to follow him or at least say that they want to follow him, and, but he knows the heart of man. When he says he knew, uh, he knows the heart of man, he's like, I know your heart. I know that ultimately you want, you want my stuff more than you want me. You want what the gifts I can bring you more than actual transformation that I bring you. See, these folks, they didn't want that. When, when he came in, when Jesus, listen, we, we say we love Jesus, let him mess with your pocketbook the right way. When you really have to feel it. Let him mess with your livelihood a little bit, and you really have to feel it. Let him mess up a certain relationship you have, and you really have to feel it. Then you're like, you know, I, that's, not the, that's not the Jesus that I signed up for. I, 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 that one miracle over there was good enough, but... This whole, all this other stuff you're unsettling for me, 
I didn't sign up for this. You know what amazes me more? And I'm closing. What, what amazes me the most is that he, here he is, all these people around him that are seeing these miracles, whatever they were, they're seeing them and they're listening and they're believing something about him. He won't entrust himself to them, but he does entrust himself to his 12 disciples. That amazes me. These 12 disciples, nothing special about them, right? There wasn't anything intrinsically great or faithful about these. And y'all, y'all need to be thankful that's the case. Need to be thankful that it's like, I'm going to wait until I see the people that are worthy, and then I will then allow them to be my disciples. Because if that were the case, none of us would follow him. We wouldn't, because we would be like, well, I, how do you get yourself to a place where you are perfectly in the right position uh, heart-wise, where God can go, you're clean enough, Come doesn't work. It amazes me because you've got these 12 disciples he trusts himself to. And yeah, their faith was growing. They were walking alongside him, but they were still very weak. They vacillated multiple times. And ultimately, even one of his own disciples betrayed him. And he entrusted himself to people who would actually betray him. We, it's impossible to try to understand how and why he chose these guys versus uh, others. How and why he chose you versus others. Don't know, don't even want to get into that discussion. All I know is that on some level, we should always feel nothing but humbled that he did. I'm so overwhelmingly humbled that I get to be called a disciple. I'm so humbled to the fact that I, I actually get a chance to, to, to be a part of somehow God entrusts his mission in the world, into our hands, the church. Broken with all of her warts, all of the problems that we have, in somehow believers are the hands into which he entrusts himself, entrusts these incredible gifts, entrusts his very spirit, and says, now go out and make disciples. Why would he trust us? Why would he trust us? And all that does is bring us to a place of genuine humility. He trusts himself to us, to witness his person, to witness his glory, and even to witness his very reputation. He's reminding us that in spite of our weakness, he has placed in us his people, this great and precious trust. So family, my prayer is that we indeed would be a people that would say, Lord, we want to be able to steward this trust you've given us. We want to steward your heart well. We want to steward your mind well, the things that you've given us, the things that you've trusted, entrusted us to. God, we want to, be, uh, we want to be helpful stewards. We want to live up to this trust, and we can only do it by your power, by your strength. So ask yourself this question as we close. Ask yourself this question. Which Jesus stirs my affections more? Because these are both really important things. Is it peaceful unity, Jesus? Is it protest, riot, Jesus? You know, if, if you have one without the other, it's going to be an idol to you, by the way. Got to say that. If you're a person that's like unity, 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 without any type of real protest, you've probably made Jesus into something else, and that is now your idol. But the, the converse is true as well. If you're somebody that's like, protest, 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 without any sense of God's heart and his compassion and his love and his unity you've probably made that into an idol as well. And here's the thing. 
neither sides of that faux Jesus will save you. Neither side will save you. So before we get a chance to, before we let this be our rebuttal, when somebody uh, embraces uh, an issue of something that maybe uh, we should all be united on, we don't have to put out that fire. And if somebody is in a place of real heart, heartbroken protest about something, we don't have to put out that fire. We need to be able to embrace both. We need to be able to walk and chew gum. We need to be able to say, yep, God wants us to be unified in the things that are true about him. And anything that is not like him, and we need to be divided over. If you're on this side and I'm on this side and I know God says this, there's a division there. Now, what do we do to reconcile that? What do we do to kind of meet and say, okay, listen, maybe we're on two different sides of this thing. How do we go where Jesus is? How do we together go where Jesus is? That's how we protect the things he's trusted us with. That's how we steward the things he's trusted us with well. So may we be a church that genuinely says, Lord, I want who you are. I want the very world that I live in now. I pray that you would use those things to stir my greatest affections towards you and your attributes and not myself. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you that uh, even in the midst of us not doing anything to be deserving of uh, this thing you've trusted us with, not deserving to be called your disciples, and yet you saw fit to call us yours. You saw fit to call us your sons and daughters. You saw fit to call us friends. You saw fit to call us your disciples, your followers. Father, I'm so thankful that you don't just call us that. You make us that. You transform us into that. God, I pray that as we reflect and we ponder what it is that truly stirs our affections, God, I pray that even now as we walk into communion, God, I pray that you would uh, give us real discomfort in our hearts where there are places, places that we actually don't love you enough, whether it's you at the wedding or you at the riot. There's a part of you that we just don't hold to. Maybe even there's a part of you that we don't love. And so, God, in so doing, there are ways that we don't love each other well because of it. God, will you give us a holy discomfort, a holy distaste for the things that are not of you, whether individual sins or systemic sin. And God, will you give us a deep desire for redemptive unity, not faux unity, not artificial unity, not a unity that just overlooks really horrible, hard things. Give us a unity that wants to actually cut through the things that cause division. Give us a unity that allows us to bravely uh, confront things that are, that are broken and things that are dividing us. God, let us truly be about redemptive unity. Let us do that not so that we can say, look at what we did, but so that we can praise you for everything you've done. God, I pray that you would do this now. In your matchless name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.